Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Well, I realize the title today is mostly controversial, How to Talk to a Pagan About Truth, but I think we are really at that point in our culture where we have to decide that we are just going to speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. We are about to find out what the true cost is of being a genuine disciple, a genuine follower, a foot soldier, if you will, of Jesus Christ. You know, a pagan, according to Webster's Dictionary, is an offensive term. It's a term that deliberately insults someone who does not acknowledge the God of the Bible or the God of the Torah or the God of the Quran. So, to Christians, anybody who's not a Bible believer and believes in the God of the Bible is a pagan. To the Jews, anybody who doesn't believe in the God of the Torah, he is a pagan. And to Muslims, to those who believe in the religion of Islam, anyone who does not believe in Allah is a pagan. These definitions from these religions definitely have a common thread, and it is that the adherents of the religion believe that their holy book is the only holy book It is the correct holy book. There is no other book that is absolutely true besides their holy book. And so the definition of a pagan is really someone who suppresses the truth that you believe in. And according to that definition, according to that definition, I'm a pagan according to the progressives in our country because I suppress the truth that they believe in. You're a pagan, according to the the leftists and the progressives in our country, because you suppress the truth that they believe in. Paul says that a pagan is somebody who suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. When you go to Romans chapter 1 and you start in verse 18, and you find out there are those who have known the truth about God, but they have suppressed that truth in unrighteousness, and they have turned away from the knowledge of God that is made evident to them through the creation, those people are pagans. And so I submit to you that anybody who turns away from the truth of the Word of God, that person is a pagan. It doesn't matter if they worship any other God, if they have turned away from what we consider, what we know, what we wholeheartedly believe to be God's revealed truth, that person is a pagan. And I guarantee you, if there was somebody who is a leftist or a devout Jew or a devout Muslim in this room right now talking to me, if they were really honest, they would say, I'm a pagan because I do not believe in what they consider to be truth. And so we are all surrounded by pagans. And that leaves us with a question. Whose truth is the true truth? 
whose truth is really real? You see, the answer to that question, the answer to that question will give you guidance and a foundation and a presupposition for how to live life. It will point you in the right direction as to what holy book you should believe in or not. But I submit to you that those who name the name of Christ must, this is an absolute must, stand upon the Bible as God's only and total revealed special revelation to mankind. There isn't any other revelation outside of the Word of God. Are there truths? Sure, there are truths. God created various laws that we have discovered through mathematics, through physics, through science. That's not the type of truth that we're talking about. Those are the laws of nature that God designed to be in place. What we are talking about is the special revelation of truth known as the Bible, comprised of 66 books. That truth is the truth that reveals who the Creator is, what the Creator has done, and what our responsibility is to the Creator. And the primary reason, the primary reason that people reject that truth is they want no accountability to the authority that the Creator has. They want no accountability to the contents that are found within the Bible. They can't reconcile the fact that they are deserving of eternal condemnation for their sins because they don't meet God's holy standard. And the sad reality that has happened in Christianity over the last 50 years, 60 years, is that Christians, by and large, have shied away from the bold proclamation of truth. They have desired to become syncretists. What I mean by that is they have desired to blend humankind's fallen ideas with the realities of God's Word, and they have come up with some kind of amalgamation, some kind of distortion. It's an it's a unrecognizable version of the Bible that Christians have created. Why is this? By and large, it's because Christians fear men. Christians in America, let me rephrase that, Christians in America fear men far more than they fear God. And so how are you going to talk to a pagan about truth? This is our Christian culture. This is what has been cultivated, what has been promoted. We want a Christianity that loves people, that doesn't offend people, that, that cares for people, that shows that we're responsible members of society. That type of Christianity is antithetical to being a true follower of Jesus. What did Jesus say on two separate occasions in the Gospel of Matthew? He says, if you love me, you must hate your father and your mother. In fact, I, me, Jesus, I will be the sword that divides father from son and mother from daughter, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household because of me. 
Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth. I'm bringing a sword. Those who love me will face conflict with those who they consider to be the dearest members in their life, their family members or their close friends, their close associates. Those who love me will have to forsake those close relationships. Christianity in America, by and large, has said, no, 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 no. We, we can have Jesus, and we can have all those relationships too. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to be syncretistic. We're going to blend human knowledge with God's knowledge, human wisdom with God's wisdom. We're going to take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we're going to put it together and see what happens. And you've come out with really what is a unrecognizable version of God's Word. So how do you begin to change this? How do you begin to talk to a pagan about the truth? Well, first, it starts with you, personally. You have to be a theophobe, not an anthrophobe. What do I mean by that? A theophobe, from the word theos and phobias, is a God-fearer, somebody who fears God. And an anthrophobe, from the word anthropos, again, and fabias, is somebody who is a man-fearer. You have to be a God-fearer and not a man-fearer. That's the first step to talking to any unbeliever about the truth. Do you fear God more than you fear what men will say? Having an appropriate and reverential fear of God is always the first step in cultivating the courage to speak God's truth in the midst of the threat of persecution, or in some cases, probably soon to be in America, the reality of persecution. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. The first step, the first reality, the first part of the process that any believer must take is to sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That means to set Jesus apart as the Lord of your hearts. Who do you fear? Who do you fear? Do you fear Jesus or do you fear men? You know, the reality is our faith is based on that which is not visible, but which is true. Let me say that again. Our faith is based on that which is not visible, but that which is true. Hebrews 11.1 says this, Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that which is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Theologians call this ex nihilo creation. Creation out of nothing. There was no matter until God spoke matter into existence. 
But you see, the important point about Hebrews 11.1 1 and Hebrews 11.3 is this. People gained approval because they had a conviction about things which they were not able to see and verify with their own two eyes and with their other senses. You see, everybody in this world has a presupposition that determines what they believe. A presupposition is something that you assume to be true. It's an underlying principle. It's a foundational truth. You assume it to be true, but the reality is you have never confirmed that it is in fact true. Now, many times in the process of study, in the process or throughout the course of life, we do confirm that our presuppositions are true. But everybody has a presupposition about all kinds of aspects of life. And those who are really diligent, who take time to do self-examination, they will look at their presuppositions and, and try to determine whether those are indeed true or whether they need to be changed. Believers in God have a presupposition about the origins of the world that we assume to be true. We can't go back and apply the scientific method to creation. But in the same way, evolutionists have a presupposition about origins that shapes their thinking on moral issues as well. Evolutionists can't go back and apply the scientific method upon their presuppositions. They have to accept that the processes that they believe in happened according to the models that they established, and they largely believe that by faith. Yes, they see something now, just as we do, but their interpretation of how what they see came to be is a by-faith interpretation. Believers in Jesus Christ have a presupposition that the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible contains all that is necessary for life and godliness, as Peter tells us in his second letter. If that is true, and Christians really believe that, then we will not be syncretistic. We will not seek to blend the best of the world's ideas with the best of what we find in the Word of God. And so believers first, in order to do this, have to be theophobic. They have to fear God, not men. Because if they fear God, then they will place God's Word in the right position, not only in their lives, but in their practice, and they will look for a church that will do the same. They will sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. They will set Him apart so that they are being obedient to Him not to men. So now we turn to the second principle that is necessary if you're going to talk to a pagan about truth. The second principle that is necessary is this. You have to stand on that word which you believe, not on the whims of men. See, the first principle is to be a God-fear, not a man-fear. Now, if you're going to fear God first, then you have to stand on that which you believe God wrote. So you stand on the word of truth, not on the whims of men. And I really believe, and the evidence is plentiful 
that the Christian church in America has bowed to the whims of men far more than they have bowed to the plain truth that is revealed in the Word of God. If you just look at a passage like 2 Timothy chapter 4, you begin in verse 1. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. What does Paul say to Timothy? Look, you have a commission. You have a a goal. It's more than just a goal. It's a command. It is a, a charge. It is a life purpose. And that life purpose is to preach the word. And how are you to do that, Timothy? To be ready in season and out of season. You're to reprove rebuke, to exhort, and do it with great patience and instruction. Why? Why does Paul write this to Timothy? This is the last thing that Paul writes before he is executed at the hands of Nero. These are his final instructions to his protege, Timothy. Why does he write this? Verse 3, the time will come when they, who is they? The people you, Timothy, are preaching to, the very people that you are investing your life in, the very people that you are trying to shepherd, the very people that you are trying to teach God's truth to, these people, some point in the future, will not endure sound doctrine, but they will want to have their ears tickled. That means they will want to hear something that really pleases them. And they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. Wow. Does that sound like the American church or what? There is a group of people who go to a place of worship every Sunday morning, and what they want to hear is something that sounds really good and makes them feel great about themselves. They want somebody to tell them that their sin really isn't so bad, that God accepts them and loves them for who they are, that any kind of behavior that they do is okay because don't worry, God's a God, a big God. He's got a great big tent and you fit inside the tent. And, and because of that, because these people want to hear that message, they will find somebody to stand before them and to deliver that message. You see, Paul, or yes, Paul warns about these false teachers right here. But in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, Peter talks about how these false teachers will creep into the church pretending, pretending to love Jesus, but they will prove themselves to be false. They will prove themselves to be selfish and arrogant and sexually immoral, and they will desire great honor. They are boastful, proud, and arrogant, and they will deceive many people. But it's, it's a two-way street because they were invited into the church by those who wanted to have their ears tickled, who wanted to hear something that would make them feel good. Now, it's true that you can go to church and feel good after hearing your pastor's sermon. But there are a lot of times when you don't feel good because 
You've been challenged by the Word of God to change your behavior, to be more like Jesus Christ. That process of sanctification is a lifelong process. It takes a long time to grow in Christ-likeness. In fact, it takes a lifetime to grow into Christ-likeness. And that's true in Paul's day. It was true in Martin Luther's day. It's true today. So if you have a pastor of a church or a leader of men who is preaching a gospel, and it's really a gospel, it is a message of good news that requires little commitment, that requires no personal sacrifice, that promises peace and affluence, you know that pastor is not preaching the whole counsel of the Word of God. We don't deny of course, that there is peace in knowing Christ, that you can have joy in the midst of various trials. But if that's all that you receive from the pulpit, if it's always a message of positivity and health and prosperity and doing well, well, that's a short-sighted gospel. It's an incomplete gospel. It's a man-made gospel. It's a syncretistic gospel in that it has blended the best of what mankind wants to offer with the best of what God has to offer. It doesn't mean that your pulpit should always be filled with hellfire and brimstone, but there should be a balanced, a balanced preaching that both calls the believer to continually confess sin and to be sanctified but also to be a proclaimer of truth, not of the popular ideas of mankind at the moment. Man is so fickle. I just think of an example of butter. You know, in the 1970s, butter was demonized. So they created uh, fake butter. I don't even know what it's called. My wife refuses to use it. We had fake butter for a long time. It was like a couple molecules away from being plastic. And then in the about five, six years ago, they said, oh, you know what? The, the fake butter, margarine, that's what it's called. Margarine is actually worse for you than real butter. Oh, imagine that. You've been telling people for 40 years that butter is bad and margarine is good, and now all of a sudden you change your mind. Yeah, well, that's just butter. Think about the whims of men that are promoted on the airwaves, promoted in the media, promoted in the school system. Think about the whims of men that have eternal consequences. So if you're going to be somebody who's able to talk to a pagan about truth, you have to be willing to stand on the word of truth and not compromise on any issue. That doesn't mean you can't change your theology. You should always be willing to look at the Word of God and say, is this something that I believed, but I need to change? Does the Word of God instruct me to change what I have previously held? That type of self-evaluation is good because you want to have your thinking to be in submission to the Word of God 
not the Word of God to be subject to your whims or your thinking. I think, thirdly, what we must do as believers to talk to pagans about the truth is to clearly and consistently define what sin is. The further our culture has strayed away from knowledge of the Bible and a Judeo-Christian ethic, the worse our understanding of what sin is has become. Now, if you believe exactly what the Bible says about issues like abortion, homosexual relationships, sex outside of marriage, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, if you believe what the Bible says about those topics, you're the sinner because you don't understand somebody else. You don't understand their situation or where they're coming from or why they might need to steal, why they might need to lie, why they might want to have a relationship of fornication or adultery or homosexuality. You see, we have become the bad guys for succinctly and plainly defining sin. We're the bad guys because when we define sin, it doesn't let the unregenerate person, the unsaved person, do whatever they want to do. It doesn't give hearty approval to their wicked actions. That's why we need to, in order to talk to a pagan about the truth, be consistent in how we define sin and what we say is a sin. A lot of times, I think people who are unbelievers dismiss Christians because Christians are always on a hobby horse against, you know, the big sins like homosexuality, abortion. And they don't really talk about the, the smaller sins that Christians many times participate in, like gossip or coveting, even lying, or indulging in the watching of impure and unrighteous movies or television shows. And so, because Christians hold certain sins to be so far worse than others, It has made us seem almost like hypocrites when we sin and we don't do anything about those little sins. So Christian, first and foremost, your responsibility is to look at your life and say, man, am I doing any little sins? Am I I taking care of the little things? Maybe there's big things in your life that you need to take care of, but you definitely got to be working on the little things. If you're going to call out somebody that you know for fornication, are you a gossip? Because in their mind, gossip is is bad too. And they don't seem to care or they don't see you doing anything or seeming to care about your gossip, but you want to call them out for having a sexual relationship outside of marriage? That doesn't fly for them. So, Christian, are you willing to hold yourself to the New Testament standard? That means you have to forsake the pleasures of sin. 
And don't think you're the first one to do it. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews says about Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, that Moses considered it to be far better to be mistreated with the people of Israel than to what? Enjoy the passing pleasures of sin as a prince of Egypt. Christian, you, yourself, have to be willing to look at your life and say, I have to work on areas of sin. I have to work not just on eliminating sin. Okay, that's cutting off the bad fruit. But I have to work on implementing the good fruit. Am I becoming a more loving person? Am I becoming a more patient person? Am I kind? Am I gentle? Am I growing in my self-control? Is it obvious to those who have known me for a long time that I've improved in these areas? See, becoming like Christ isn't just about cutting off all the bad fruit, but it's about putting on. It's that wonderful put-off, put-on principle in the New Testament written about often by the Apostle Paul. So you want to talk about sin. Well, God has consistently condemned sin. In the Old Testament, during the time of Jesus, and in the epistles, God has consistently condemned sin. And how does he define sin? Well, a good place to go to define sin is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. All right, maybe you're not a fornicator, but you are definitely an idolater. Everybody has worshipped a God that is not the true God. All right, next, adulterers or effeminate or homosexuals, nor thieves, nor those who covet, nor those who are drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Every single person fits one of those sins. Every single person has committed one of those sins at some point in their life. Now, maybe not all of them, but some of them. That's where you go to define sin. You talk about, look, not just these major things like homosexuality, that's condemned right alongside of being a covetous person. Look, our culture celebrates covetousness. I mean, that's why there is such an anticipation for the next iPhone or the next Samsung Galaxy because we covet those things that are new and trendy and hip and cool and will be a status symbol. We covet those things. Well, here you go. Somebody who has coveted, condemned, right alongside somebody who has been a fornicator or a drunkard, or an adulterer, or a homosexual. You see, God is consistent. Nobody who sins, nobody who violates his standard, even if you've just broken one part of the law, nobody, nobody gets into the kingdom of heaven. But there is hope, and this is where you end up. That's why this passage, in my mind, is so important to know when you're talking to a pagan about the truth. Look at verse 11. Such were some of you. Some of you people, he's writing to the Corinthian church, used to be like this. 
but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. What did Jesus do for us? Jesus bore the wrath of God in his body on the cross. Through his blood, there was the forgiveness of sins. Through his blood, a payment was made, a propitiation. It's a payment that satisfies God's wrath, and it resulted in God taking our debt and placing it upon him at the cross. And Jesus was killed on the cross. He was literally put in the ground in a tomb. But God, on the third day, raised him up, breaking the power of sin and death and proving that Jesus Christ is the true victor and those who believe in him will have victory too. You want to talk to the pagan about truth? Do these things. Be a God-fearer, not a man-fearer. Stand on the word of God, not on the whims of men. And be consistent when you talk about God's condemnation that is a result of sinful behavior. Look, that doesn't make it easy to have these conversations, but that gives you a pathway to being consistent. It gives you some common ground that you can reach and touch. And that is the hardest part about having a conversation, I think, today, is finding some type of common ground where you can say, all right, here's a place where we can agree about some issue, and let's start building a conversation from there. Let's start talking at that particular point, at that particular juncture. Do you know this is what our culture needs, and this is what we have been called to do? Isaiah says, How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news to those who have never heard it before. And, dear friends, we have the good news, and we are living in a culture where the good news is absent, and the church, by and large, is peddling a false good news. We who really believe that the Word of God is sufficient and inerrant and all you need, we have the real the true, the one and only, the unique good news, and we must, we must proclaim it boldly to those who we know who don't have it. That's so much easier to say than it is to do. You know it, I know it. It's a struggle in our lives. But let our prayer together be this, that God would give us courage to fight the battle, that we would see victory through our faith in Christ, that we would see victory through our faithfulness to obey Christ, and that hearts and lives would be changed as a result of our practicing the truth. Thank you for listening. Once again, I pastor the Grace Brethren Chapel. And it is a great blessing to be able to not only pastor this wonderful group of people, to be their shepherd, and I serve with three other shepherds, but it's a great blessing and honor for me to be able to present what I've studied to you in this particular format. I want to send a great shout out to my friend Stephen Lore 
at S. Lore Productions for production work on the podcast. May God bless you. Thank you so much for your time.